Hi, Dance friends, and welcome to the Dance Edit Podcast. I'm Margaret Fuhrer. I'm Courtney Escoyne. And I'm Lydia Murray. We are editors at Dance Media, and in today's episode, we'll be talking about how the pandemic's ending of show business as usual might ultimately give rise to a new and more equitable American theater, discussing the representation gap faced by queer women in the ballet world and the dancers who are working to change that, unpacking the controversy surrounding the film Cuties, which just came out on Netflix, and hearing a message from Aisha Ash, the former New York City ballet dancer who's now SAB's first Black female full-time faculty member. And if you've been listening to our recent episodes, you know that we are Aisha super fans. So we're really excited for you all to hear her her beautiful memo. Um, but before we get started, just a friendly reminder to sign up for our daily Dance Edit newsletter if you haven't already subscribed. It is a one-minute read of a digest, just highlighting the most important news stories happening around the dance world. And we actually write it so that it'll appeal not just to dance super nerds like us, but to people of varying levels of dance enthusiasm. So, you know, tell your mom too. Like I actually have a few running chats with dance media editors talking about their mom's reactions to dance edit stories. And it's just like routinely delightful. Um, <laughs> so you can sign up and have your dance and dance adjacent friends and family members sign up at thedanceedit.com. So now it's time for our weekly dance headline rundown. Lots of news to talk about this week and miraculously only about 30% of it is dark and depressing. Um, Lydia, you want to start us off? Last week, ABT promoted six dancers to principal and one to soloist. The new principals are Ju Wan An, Aaron Bell, Skylar Brandt, Thomas Forster, Calvin Royal III, who was now only the third African-American dancer in the company's history to reach the highest rank, and Cassandra Trenery. And the new soloist is Gabe Stoneshayer. Huge congrats to everyone. I could happily spend the rest of the episode just squealing over how excited I am for every single one of these dancers. Meteoric rises and long overdue promotions in that bunch. Just great news all around. An unexpected bright spot. Another one of those uh, from their colleagues across the plaza, New York City Ballet announced details of its fall digital season, uh, which will begin September 28th. So like with its digital spring season, we'll be getting to see live streams of previously captured performance footage, but we're also getting new works during the final week by Pam Tanowitz, Jamar Roberts, Justin Peck, Sidra Bell, and Andrea Miller. Tanowitz and Roberts had both had commissions lined up for this past spring, while Sidra and Andrea were to make their company choreographic debuts at the Fall Fashion Gala. Particularly notable, not just because of how different their work is from typical city ballet fare, but also because Sidra will be the first Black woman to create a new ballet for the company in its history. And the National Dance Day routine is here. National Dance Day will be on September 19th this year. It's an annual event created by American Dance Movement, formerly known as the Dizzy Feet Foundation. And it annually produces a video for this holiday for people everywhere to do. And this year's routine was choreographed by Shannon Mather and features the World of Dance Season 4 winners MDC3. Um, an animated movie based on Irish dance sensation Riverdance is in the works. Uh, Riverdance, the animated adventure, will be a musical comedy featuring music adapted from the stage show and voiceover work by the likes of Pierce Brosnan, Lily Singh, and Brendan Gleeson. No word yet on whether they'll be using motion capture tech or something similar for the dance elements. Yeah, I don't know what a Riverdance movie means, but I'm excited by the general idea. I'm on board. <laughs> 
little bit darker news, unfortunately. This year's Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade will be scaled down and TV only with a 75% reduction in the number of participants. No one under 18 will be able to participate and the regional high school and marching bands who had been selected to perform will instead join the production next year. Uh, Six will be the first musical to return to the West End with a planned run from November 14th to January 31st, uh, with a significantly reduced audience capacity to allow for social distancing and additional safety measures in place. The producers stated that while they know it might not be economically viable, they're hoping to at least help build audience confidence and help stimulate the local economy. Um, According to Dr. Anthony Fauci, those in the U.S. might be able to return to live performances in theaters at the end of 2021 or possibly the middle of that year. Yeah, we were chatting a little on Slack about this Fauci news because in some ways his honesty is disheartening. He's like, maybe we'll be back in the middle of 2021 optimistically, which, ugh. but in another sense, it's, it's kind of a relief. Like, okay, this is reality. We're shut down for the long haul. What can we do? What should we do until we're all back on stage? Well, and I think so much of what has been frustrating over the last six months really has been the uncertainty of the not knowing. So I think having like a more realistic, like this is what we're facing is helpful. Yeah. Let us know yeah. what we're looking at so that we can prepare and get things back. Right. And speaking of preparing, that leads us into our next segment. Um, this week, the New York Times published a a huge feature called How to Birth a New American Theater. And the idea behind it was that, yes, the pandemic has pretty much burned the theater industry as we know it to the ground. But it's not like the old model was all that great. Um, As initiatives like We See You White American Theater have pointed out, it wasn't inclusive, it wasn't equitable, it was built on racist assumptions, and also just bad business systems and practices. So the paper asked all its theater critics, what about the industry needs to be fixed? And how we might fix it as we rebuild post-pandemic. And we talk about this topic a ton on the podcast, but I think this story raised points that are worth addressing from a dance world perspective. Something this article addresses is the need to have a more inclusive canon of classics in theater. And for so long, figures like Shakespeare and Williams and Miller and other white males have dominated and been exalted while the pool of classics created by BIPOC has been much smaller. And the list of Black playwrights uh, regarded as you know the greats has largely been limited to as brilliant as they were uh, Lorraine Hansberry, August Wilson, etc. Um, and this also can apply to dance. In ballet, there's kind of an almost religious reverence for the work of choreographers like Pettipah and Balanchine. And that continued reverence for white males is often justified by the eras in which they rose to prominence. But of course, by continuing to do that without thoroughly looking at who might have been unjustly overlooked at that time, you risk perpetuating the inequities of the past. And the one way to fix that is to focus on finding and developing more BIPOC choreographic talent today. The story also talks about the importance of diversifying audiences um, with both more affordable tickets and also by making streaming first better and second more financially viable, since that is a method that democratizes access and improves the reach of the performing arts generally. There were a couple of points related to that that I found really intriguing. One was Jesse Green rightly pointing out that the real problem with democratizing streams, or at least what we always hear, is the money. Uh, Most online productions from the last several months have been free or fundraisers, which great for the viewers, great for the organizations that benefit. But how do you make sure that artists who already tend to be very underpaid 
are still getting paid for their work and can actually make a living doing this. Elizabeth Vincentelli uh, was making an argument for a profit-sharing model similar to what is used in pro sports leagues in the U.S., um, it's a fascinating argument, particularly in that it would bolster off-off and off-Broadway spaces and acknowledge those spaces not only as the incubators they often are for the talent that makes such successful work on Broadway, but also for their own artistic validity. So our next segment also follows the theme of long, important problems that we should address during this moment of relative calm. Um, Point Magazine this week published a piece about the representation gap for queer women in ballet. Um, even though the ballet world is generally very supportive of the LGBTQ plus community, what that typically means is that it supports its queer men. Its queer women's voices often go unheard. There's a sort of startling lack of queer female identifying role models in the community. So the question is, how can ballet companies improve the visibility of all their queer dancers, not just their queer men? And let's also not forget about people who are gender nonconforming. I unsurprisingly have a lot to say on this topic. So here we go. Go, Courtney. Go. <laughs> All right. So this is not an issue that is limited to ballet or to dance or even just to the arts. Across the board, when we talk about LGBTQ plus representation, the vast majority of the time, the examples that are praised and get the most attention are of white, cisgender, gay men. Think of the examples we see on stage and dance. Matthew Bourne's Swan Lake is what immediately leaps to mind. Now, in the wider culture, things are improving. However, that doesn't mean there isn't still gatekeeping about what kinds of queerness are the right kinds, the acceptable kinds, the non-threatening kinds. Folks on the asexual spectrum who are pansexual, who are transgender, or who don't fit neatly into the gender binary are frequently treated as both not straight enough to belong in straight spaces, but not queer enough to be queer. Bisexual men are written off as actually being gay but afraid to say it, bisexual women are reduced to titillating objects, and bisexual non-binary folks are utterly ignored, largely because, even with the theoretically limitless possibilities presented by queerness as a spectrum, the acceptability of desire and attraction is still defined in relation to mostly cisgender men. So what's important to remember is that the LGBTQ plus community is actually a gorgeous patchwork quilt of many, many communities and identities, all of which have their own needs and perspectives that intersect and overlap in wonderful and surprising ways. Needs and perspectives that are oftentimes oversimplified by the rest of cis-head society under the umbrella of LGBTQ plus. So, does it matter that the queer representation we see from ballet companies tends to just be cis-gay men? Yes, it absolutely does because showcasing just one type of queerness and calling it a day is these days often no more than ticking a box. Frankly, if the human experience was homogenous, we wouldn't need the arts. Who wants to follow that? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I do think it it's worth talking about the issues that are specific to the ballet world yeah. within this larger problem, which is very much a larger problem, because there are a lot of ballet-specific stereotypes that are at play simultaneously in this this issue. First of all, ballet's roots in the gender binary, not unique to ballet, but pretty extreme in ballet. The stereotype of ballet is a deeply feminine, quote unquote, art, and ballerinas as ultra feminine. The stereotype of queer women as more sporty and masculine, and what that all means for women in ballet who don't embody this, quote unquote, traditional femininity. Which, PSA, gender presentation and gender identity, not the totally same different. thing. And also the idea that a more mask or androgynous presenting dancer couldn't transform into a swan is 
deeply absurd to me. Ballet is all about transformation. It's about presenting a particular image and aesthetic to meet the needs of the choreography. So why would you assume that just because, you know, a woman presents more masculinely that she wouldn't be able to do that if she has the training? I also just have to shout out Lauren Warnecke for writing this story. It's really fantastic, and it profiles um, a couple of out queer women who are currently dancing with major ballet companies in the U.S., um, Audrey Malik at the Washington Ballet and Lauren Flower at Boston Ballet, both of whom spoke really intelligently about this issue. I will retweet, so to speak, everything that, that, Courtney, <laughs> that Courtney just said. Thank you for coming to my TED Talk. So the always frustrating and frustratingly never-ending debate about how to be the quote-unquote right kind of woman leads us to our next segment, which is about the controversy surrounding the French film Cuties, which was just released on Netflix in the United States. So I'm actually going to do this one alone because I have seen the movie, but Courtney and Lydia haven't had a chance to see it yet. Yeah, so have not seen the movie and one of the things that has been so frustrating about this entire story has been seeing people who have not seen the film uh criticizing it quite heavily so other than providing some context that we've gleaned from reading various articles i think we're just gonna let margaret take the reins on this and i am more than happy to take the lead on this one i'm not gonna lie hold me back um so here's a sort of condensed version of what's being said so first of all, Cuties was directed by Maimouna Ducoré, and it follows an 11-year-old Muslim immigrant named Aimé, who, like Ducoré, is from Senegal and lives in Paris. Aimé is trying to figure out who she is. She's looking for role models. She's getting all kinds of competing messaging from the people around her about womanhood and femininity. And she ends up befriending a group of girls at her middle school who have a dance group called Cuties, or Mignon in French, and starts learning increasingly risque routines with them, inspired by things that they've seen online, um, that they're going to perform at a dance competition. And the Cuties uproar first started a few weeks back when, as we briefly talked about a couple episodes ago, Netflix released marketing images showing these young girls in suggestive outfits and poses, and that prompted some critics, even though they had not seen the movie, to condemn it for inappropriately sexualizing children. And then on September 9th, Netflix actually released the film and another wave of backlash began, led by a group of conservative American politicians, notably Texas Senator Ted Cruz. And by the way, it should be said that even though the film is now available, Cruz has refused to watch it, like not only admitted that he hasn't watched it, but made a point of not watching it. So Cruz called for the Justice Department to investigate Netflix for the distribution of child pornography. Wait, 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 what? I had yeah. not heard that twist. What? Oh, yeah, that was his line on it. Yeah. So uh, following that, the social media hordes started to attack and hashtag cancel Netflix started trending on Twitter a second time and cue the spiral. So after watching it, here's the thing. The film absolutely condemns the sexualization of children. There's no ambiguity about Ducoré's feelings on this issue. Does Cuties have suggestive dance scenes? Yes. Are they filmed in a way that is intended to make you uncomfortable? Yes. Yes, they are. That's the point. Um, showing these 11-year-olds selling something when they don't yet understand what it is that they're selling, it's not an endorsement of that kind of behavior. It's an indictment of a culture that, first of all, rewards women who sexualize themselves with a male gaze, and second of all, doesn't give children the tools they need to cope with the sexual content that is all too readily available to them online. I mean, the girls are 
trying to imitate the sexy dancing they're seeing on social media because they believe it'll make them more popular because they've seen grown women get validation for that kind of performance. But the film does not present their dancing as freeing or something to be admired. In fact, it's always extremely careful to show the negative reactions of the people around them, their sadness or shock or repulsion at a group of kids trying to act like grown-ups. And Ducoré was also very careful during the filming process. She had a child psychologist on set throughout the whole thing to work with the young actors. She filmed the dance sequences as composite shots to break up the more sexual choreography. She was very responsible in terms of how she went about the filming. And I believe that also the counselor is still available to the kids right now because she wanted them to be able to deal with the increased scrutiny that they're going to be under now that the film is out in the world. And and now it's a, it's even more heightened, the level of scrutiny that they're facing. Is there a real discussion to be had about the way that society sexualizes young girls and particularly the way the dance community does? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And that's part of the discussion that Ducoré wants to start. I mean, you're supposed to feel angry and sad after watching this movie, but at the world, not at the director. And on a personal note here, I want to say that I worked on Dance Spirit magazine for 12 years. It's a magazine aimed at teenage dancers. It features teenage dancers. And that job requires vigilance to ensure that nobody is represented in an age-inappropriate way. The dance world, and especially the commercial dance world, has for years tended to sexualize young students, girls in particular, I saw so many performances at dance competitions, class videos from big studios in LA that deeply upset me with their seeming indifference to the central nature of the choreography and the extreme youth of the dancers performing it. So the anxiety behind this uproar is very familiar to me. But Ducoré is on the right side of this fight. Well, and that's what she's been talking about in interviews when this has come up is saying, you know, I want people to see this film and I'm curious to see what they say when they realize, no, we're on the same side here. Mm-hmm. Ducoré just wrote an essay for the Washington Post and I wanted to read her quote that I think concludes it. Um, she says, that's why I made cuties to start a debate about sexualization of children in society today so that maybe, just maybe, politicians, artists, parents, and educators could work together to make a change that will benefit children for generations to come. It's my sincerest hope that this conversation doesn't become so difficult that it gets too caught up in today's cancel culture. Though I can't speak to the experience of growing up Senegalese or Muslim or French, I have a sense of what it's like to navigate the complexities of cis womanhood and of coming of age as a cis girl when you're caught between two different forms of patriarchy. And of course, women do still face pressure to present themselves in a conventionally sexually alluring way in order to receive validation in some form. And kids can see this playing out in real time on social media now. But society isn't necessarily preparing them well to face this pressure, and that seems to be a major part of what this film is about. Lots of big, important conversations to be had about this movie, which is why it sucks so much that because a lot of ill-informed politicians decided to make a target out of it, now the controversy is the conversation we're forced to have about it. Instead of, say, getting to celebrate the fact that a woman of color told a story about a young Black Muslim girl and that it's a nuanced and empathetic picture of and by people who are acutely underrepresented in cinema. Like, is it a perfect movie? No. But Cuties deserves so much better than it's been given. Deep breaths, Margaret. Deep breaths before we move into our next (laughs) segment. Um, 
which is the next installment in our voice memo series. And this week, our message is from Aisha Ash, who is an alum of New York City Ballet and now officially, as of this week, teaching at the School of American Ballet as its first Black female full-time faculty member. Um, So in addition to dancing at New York City Ballet, where she had a very difficult time as a woman of color, something she's been candid about, Ash also danced with Bejar Ballet and Alonzo King Lines Ballet. And in 2011, she founded the Swan Dreams Project with the goals of exposing more African-American communities to ballet and making it clear that beauty and talent are not restricted by race or stereotypes or socioeconomic status. Here she is. Hello, Dance Added listeners. My name is Aisha Ash, and I am a former member of the New York City Ballet. I'm also the creator of the Swan Dreams Project, and I am currently in New York City, where I have moved my family from California uh, because I was offered a full-time teaching position at the School of American Ballet. Um, I had been teaching as part of a visiting fellowship through the school when I was eventually approached and offered a permanent teaching position. Um, at first, I was, you know, well, I was filled with many emotions from being completely surprised that I was their choice and then completely honored and then scared, not only at the idea of having to uproot a family of four from California to New York City, but also understanding that I would be the first black female full-time teacher that the school has ever had in its 86-year history. So it was because of all of this that I did not give my answer right away. Um, I wanted to go home and and think about this a bit, and I, I took quite a bit of time, and I had to think about it with my family. I had two children, and thinking about my husband's job, and would they like the city, would it work for our family, etc. I eventually said yes, um, just with the understanding um, that there was just so much more about this than just accepting this wonderful teaching um, position and this wonderful teaching opportunity. For me, it was a continuation of the work that I had already begun, not only as a dancer, but, you know, with my outreach to Swandering's Project. And I thought about how many students I could help. I remember those feelings of, of loneliness and, and isolation when I was in the school, and I, I wanted to be that visual presence to help those like me to feel validated and seen. It's also worth mentioning that because of my experience, I have this awareness of what it feels like uh, to feel other and being plagued with questions as to whether you belong. I want to be that teacher that creates a space where students feel like they can put those fears behind and just focus on the work while enjoying this incredible incredibly beautiful art form. You know, starting the project, the Swandrums project in, in 2011, I wanted to use my art of ballet to show the world that women of color can be so much more than a stereotype, that we can exhibit all the qualities of a ballerina and, and so much more. I'm thrilled to see, you know, so many beautiful black and brown ballerinas these days, and I look forward to the day when it just becomes the norm. And when, you know, we see articles that come out, it's about their stunning performances and not that they have broken some barrier. Now, while this is, you know, my my appointment is um, just one small step, my hope is that the ballet world will continue to do the work in making sure 
they reflect this rich diversity that is our world, as well as continuing to turn inward and to ask itself the hard questions. And then not just asking those questions and receiving the answers, but then taking action. Love that message. Love Aisha. As you might know, since I gushed about her on a previous episode, um, that (laughs) idea of helping students feel less alone and helping give them the space to just focus on the work and not worry so much about things like whether they fit in, whether they belong, whether they even have a future in this art form is so important. So thank you so much to Aisha. All those lucky SAB students. Um, Please be sure to keep up with Aisha's ongoing advocacy work too at theswandreamsproject.org and to follow her at theswandreamsproject on Instagram. And then also visit sab.org for news on happenings at the school, including Aisha's work there. Okay. Thanks everyone for joining us. We will be back next week for more discussion of the news that's moving the dance world. And in the meantime, keep learning, keep advocating, and keep dancing. Mind how you go, friends. Bye, everyone. The Dance Edit Podcast is a product of Dance Media, publisher of Dance Magazine, Dance Spirit, Point, Dance Teacher, Dance Business Weekly, and the Dance Edit Newsletter. Our hosts are Courtney Escoyne, Margaret Fuhrer, Lydia Murray, and Cadence Neenan. Our music is by Celestine, with special thanks to Broadway Dance Center for helping us record those football sounds. Find out more about The Dance Edit and subscribe to our daily newsletter at thedanceedit.com. Music